Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. We're going to begin the second chapter of the book of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, this is a very, very important chapter in not only the book, these two letters put together, this is a very important chapter. It's going to take us a little bit to work through it. We won't do the whole chapter in one day, but... uh, we will probably get it in two uh, lessons, but, but this is important, so we'll take some time here. But uh, it is, uh, just want to recognize as we begin our study, I just got word an hour or so ago that Mark Markham passed away. So keep him and your family and uh, everybody in your prayers that, you know, he was certainly ready to go, but struggled a lot. I just saw him two weeks ago, and he was just laughing and talking and positive. But uh, you just never know. But he's uh, he's with the Lord, so we'll keep, we'll keep their family in prayer. Um, if you have your prayer card, let's pray before we study, and we'll get started. Uh, let's ask the Lord to open our hearts and illumine our minds here. Okay, let us pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Chapter 2, we could title, if we gave it a title, The Signs of Jesus' Second Coming. This is where the Apostle is, is going with this chapter. He is taking great care to try and straighten them out. They've been deceived. One of the things that we know he wrote about in the first letter, and and then we talked about again last week in the first chapter, is he's they were not only being persecuted, they were being deceived. There were false teachers within this new little church. I mean, this church is only six months to a year old, and there's already false teachers. The false teaching is specifically about what's going on with the second coming of Jesus, when it is, how it is, uh, who this 
lawless one is that we know as Antichrist. Uh, so there's great concern. I think it's good to stop and note before we just jump into the scripture here. Um, it's really, it's powerful to me. As I studied First and Second Thessalonians together, this thought came to me. This is the, this is the earliest letters that we have on record of scripture of the New Testament. Okay, these are of the of the all the, the books of the, uh, uh, the epistles. This is the earliest ones. These represent some of the earliest teachings, and isn't it interesting to note that. The apostle taught them by word of mouth. He didn't write them a, a catechism. He didn't pass them out a book and say, here's what you need to follow. I mean, they, they didn't even have scriptures everywhere. I mean, the Old Testament was written down on scrolls, but most of those scrolls were in Jerusalem uh, at the temple and the different synagogues. I mean, this is over in Greece. These are a bunch of Greeks, maybe some Jews there that had a few scriptures and scrolls in a local synagogue. But as beginning a Christian church, what they really had was the teachings of the Apostle Paul and how he taught about Jesus and the gospel. And it fascinates me that part of their main teaching in order to become Christian, a Christian church and followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, was the understanding of the second coming. That was paramount in their minds. It was paramount in his teachings. And I thought to myself today, if we were starting a church, how many churches, we plant churches all the time in, in the Christian faith. And how, I wonder how many of those churches, when they gather together this community and they start this, maybe it starts in their living room or maybe they have a building they go to or there's 20 people or whatever. How many of them really make sure, now here's, here's the elementary things of the faith that you need to understand. And a big part of it is the second coming of Jesus. And you need to understand what's going to happen here. But I, I bet that's not even out there amongst most of them. I'm not saying they don't believe it. I'm just saying they don't teach it like they probably should. And I think if anything, as I, as I look at these er, the earliness, uh, the, the early date of these and the importance of these and how important this is to the Apostle Paul, I think, man, we, I think we've done a disservice to our faith and to those we share the gospel with by not concentrating more on the second coming. And then probably one of the reasons why we fail to teach on it and make it a part of our catechism, if you will, our elementary teachings of the faith, is because we're all so confused about it. There's been so many people teach on this. There's been so many different theories Different interpretations. It's just one of those things that now most of the preachers I know don't even talk about. They just, let's leave it alone. It's too controversial. But that's not right. We can't do that. Yes, we can use a lot of predictions as to when it's going to be. Yeah. And, and it's so clear in Scripture that Jesus says no one knows. Jesus says don't occupy yourself with that. You do what I, do the work I've got for you to do. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we, if we look through history, I did a little historical study this week on this, and almost from the beginning, there were historical teachings of wrong teachings about who the Antichrist was 
and when Jesus was coming, almost from the beginning. Uh, we can see it in the first couple of centuries really strongly. And then we move in, uh, it, it was strongly identified with Rome in the first few centuries because Rome was set themselves, the Roman emperor set themselves up to be God, many of them did, uh, and they were the power uh, in the world and didn't like, the, they persecuted the church and all these things, so that makes sense. And then you move in, all of a sudden the Roman emperor, you get, you get in the fourth century and the Roman emperor becomes a Christian. Uh, well, that changed the ball game. Well, it must not be the Roman emperor who's the, the Antichrist. Everybody keeps thinking of somebody else, and everybody keeps trying to predict things. And it, it just goes through history, you know, and then you get into the Middle Ages, and all of a sudden they think it's the Pope again. You know, all the great reformers, the, the Calvins and the John Knox and, and, and Martin Luther's, all these people thought the Antichrist was the Pope, or at least the Catholic Church, and then... And so then the, the, the Counter-Reformation, the Catholic theologians began to say, no, Martin Luther's the Antichrist, you know. <laughs> so everybody's throwing barbs at each other. And, and, and it just goes on and on and on throughout history. Isn't the Antichrist like the governments? Because like when it talks about the ten horns and stuff like that, those are like Greece and Turkey. And mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and that's a... And yeah, those are imageries that are right. You're right, Jackie. Those are imageries out of the book of Daniel that talk about different rising powers and governments. And we can see through history some of those fulfilled. So we're going to talk just a little bit. We're not going to get, this isn't a deep study of the book of Daniel. This isn't a book, deep study of the book of Revelation. This is not a deep study of the school of eschatology. This is just a study of Paul's letters here. But we do need to discuss a little bit of it. Um, and and, and what, I, what I want you to hear as we go through this, because undoubtedly everyone in the room has an opinion. Everyone in the room has been taught something. Uh, you know that I've told you my opinions have changed through the years as I've studied more and more. And, and I'm not here to convince you of my opinion or position. I'm just here to open the scripture and help us to consider what it might mean. Okay. So as we do that, we've prayed for the Lord to illumine our hearts and, and to open our minds. Um, and so I'm going to read just the first 12 verses of this, okay? 12 verses of this chapter, there's a few more, but it, it changes a little, so I'm going to just stop. And I don't know if we'll get through all 12 or not, but we'll try. In discussion, I mean, but I'll read the first 12. Okay, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship." so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you this? And you know what it is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. and Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawlessness, and then excuse me, and then the lawless one will be revealed, 
And the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and his coming. The coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power and with pretended signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are to perish because they refuse to love the truth and be so be saved. Therefore, God sends upon them a strong delusion to make them believe what is false so that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's stop there. Okay, so let's begin with this thought. Paul, in verse 4, I think it is. No, maybe it was... Uh, let me find it. Man. Let's begin with this thought. Verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was with you, when I was still with you, I told you this. We, we just wish Paul would just answer all of our questions here and repeat everything that he told them. <laughs> but he doesn't. Okay? So we're reading a letter 2,000 years later in a totally different context. They knew what he meant. They knew what he meant by who this lawless one was. They knew what he meant by what this rebellion is. They knew what he meant by, you know, the coming of the Lord. All of this was, I mean, that was like, oh, yeah, we realize. We're asking questions of the text much later in a totally different context. So we have to be very careful. Rule number one here is we want to be very careful how we interpret the possibility of meanings here. Because the truth is there are perhaps several different things these scriptures could mean to us today. Okay, and I'm not going to give you a dogmatic, oh, here's what it is. That's not what I'm going to do. But I'm going to give you two or three alternatives of what are believed and could rightly be believed by different interpretation of the Scripture. I don't think we can be dogmatic about how we interpret some of these things. Or else Paul would have just expelled it out for all of, all of time and eternity, you know, it, so we can ask questions. We can say, well, you know, why did God leave so many things unclear in Scripture? <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier if he just spelled it out? You know? but, then, but then that's really not what Scripture is for. See, that's what we want. We want Scripture to be this rule book. We want it to be the catechism with all the answers. But that's not what Scripture is for. Scripture, Holy Scripture, 66 books to 70-some books, depending on how you want to accept what, what is in the Old Testament. All of these books written over maybe 40 different authors over at least 1,500 years. All a process of God telling a story, revealing himself and how he has revealed himself and how he'll continue to reveal himself to humanity so that we can ultimately know him and be in relationship with him. That's the purpose of Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture is not a rule book. It's not a didactic teaching form for, for questions and answers. That's, that's what catechisms are. Catechisms are question and answer. You know, who is God? All these, well, those are man's best attempt to understand what they think the Scriptures mean. 
So when we read the scriptures, we should recognize that they are alive. The writer of Hebrews says, Scripture is, is living, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to divide truth. We, we can, but you know what? There's also a point where everyone can't be right because there's a whole lot of different interpretations about what Scripture means, and everyone can't be right. But let us be humble in how we try to interpret it, okay? Let's be humble. Now, let's begin with this thought. Um, Paul has been teaching throughout the first book, he said, he used that phrase, for you are people of the day. Paul often called the Christians, we're people of the day. You're people of the day. The day meaning what? The The day of Jesus, the day of his second coming, the day when Jesus will be revealed to the world in all his glory. That he, Paul uses that phrase a lot. We're people of the day. You're people of the day. Okay, he's reminding them that we're, the, the first believers, the first Christians, they understood they were stepping into a faith and they were people of the day. They were looking for the day. To be the, the day of Jesus coming was going to be pretty important to them. It's, it's the fulfillment of everything. And so um, he tells them there that that's, the, that's what they've been misled on. Okay, don't be quickly shaken. Uh, don't be don't be concerned. He says now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet Him. That word assembling is kind of an interesting word. I put it on the board here in the Greek for you. Okay, it's kind of hard to to spell and write. Uh, episunagogi. Episunagogi. That's how that's pronounced. Episunagogi, as best I can pronounce it. And and it literally speaks of assembling together, like somebody calls an assembly. We all gather around. Okay, that's literally what that word means. That's a little different twist than in 1 Thessalonians when everybody talks about that word rapture, when he used that word snatched away. Okay, not saying that that doesn't happen, but he's giving us another look at it here. Okay, and this is really a great assembly is what happens when the Jesus Christ returns isn't just this concept of rapture, but this concept of everyone being assembled. Everyone in heaven who's gone before us, and everyone who's alive and left on earth. When Christ steps into history, again, literally, boom, the end will come. And we're all assembled together. That's what that word means, an assembly. Now he also says about this day of the Lord and about this assembly or gathering, if you will, don't be so quickly shaken. He just left them six months ago and they're already being deceived. (laughs) Boy, they're quick. Quick to, to shake their faith. Don't be shaken. And he gives us a hint as to how they're being deceived here. He says, don't be deceived either by spirit or by word or by letter. That's purported to come from us, he says in verse uh, 2. So maybe there's even letters being circulated to them that supposedly are written by the Apostle Paul or Silas or, or Timothy or one of these that was part of his team. False letters, okay? That shows you the extent to which these false teachers are willing to deceive the people. They're even willing to write a false letter and sign Paul's name to it. Isn't that interesting? Maybe that sheds a little light on why Paul always at the end of his letters says, this is written by me. You know, he kind of gets a signature style going there uh, in his epistles. So, and what is it that they're really deceiving them about? What is it that they're saying? What is the big deception? 
in verse 3 tells us. Uh, it's at the end of verse 2. That the day of the Lord has come. That the day of the Lord has come. That somehow they missed it. Okay? That the Jesus has already returned. And you missed it. We missed it. So remember, in the first Thessalonian letter, they were real concerned about their loved ones were dying and what's going to happen to them because, because they were, you know, Jesus was coming again real soon, they thought. And now our loved ones are dying. And, and he goes through that teaching that we read always at gravesides about, you know, don't worry the, about those who are asleep because they will, you know, not precede those who have, uh, the, what we who are left will not precede those who have fallen asleep when this gathering happens, okay? But he's now concerned that, that they're being deceived about this day. And he wants them to know that that day has not come and will not come until these two things happen. We'll talk about those two things here this morning with a lot of our time. Has not come and will not come until at least these two things happen. Now, history is filled with people who have predicted the coming of Jesus. We mentioned that earlier. It's just filled with it. Um, almost back to the beginning, as I mentioned. So, in the middle 1800s, somewhere around there, middle to late 1800s, there was the, uh, a man by the name of Charles Russell. Charles Russell. Anybody recognize that name? What, who is he, Joan? You remember? Oh, don't don't you recognize the name? Yeah. Charles Russell is the founder of what today we would call the Jehovah's Witness. Okay? Jehovah's Witness in the 1800s. And Charles Russell, we don't have time to go into all their theology, but one of the things that Charles Russell predicted was the coming of Jesus Christ. He predicted that he would come in 1870-something. I I can't recall the exact date. Well, that came and went, and that didn't happen. So he predicted again... uh, and I think his fa- he died, but his follower, Rutherford, I think, who took over, I uh, can't remember his first name, but he predicted 1914 was going to be the critical year. Jesus was coming again in 1914. And guess what? Didn't happen. So Rutherford had to save face here. He decided that he said, guess what? We were right. Jesus did come in 1914. What we missed was he was coming invisibly. So he came invisible. That is Jehovah's Witness doctrine, is that Christ came in 1914. The end has already come. We're all just working to clean this mess up now, okay? And uh, he came in 1914. And that's a very, very simple explanation of Jehovah's Witness teaching. And I'm not trying to put them down. I disagree with them wholeheartedly and completely. But they are beautiful people, okay? Beautiful people. I have had family members in, in that uh, sect or cult, if you will. And uh, beautiful people, just misled. Like these people were about to be. These people were about to be misled. And this is what the type of things that happened to Charles Russell and, and what's happened to some of these cults like Jehovah's Witness, or we could use uh, the, the, the uh, what was his name that started Mormonism, to, or, or Baker with the uh, Christian scientists, or um, who, who, Joseph Smith, Smith, yeah, with the yeah. Mormons, yeah. All of these people were Christians that got deceived, that got misled on some point or another. And it usually always centered around the person of Jesus and his coming and his manifestation. So Paul is going to make it real clear to them, you don't have to worry that you miss the second coming. Nobody's going to miss it. It's going to be obvious. you know. But 
two things have to happen first. What, do you remember what those two things are? As we, uh, as we read the scripture this morning, does that recall it? Rebellion and the lawless one. That's right. Rebellion and the lawless one. So let's read that again. He says here, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So let's just circle that word rebellion. That's number one up let no one deceive you unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Okay, so we're going to put here man of lawlessness. Now the Greek word here for lawlessness is uh, anomia. Anomia. Antinomianism is the sin of lawlessness. Okay. This means to be utterly, to utterly disregard all law, God's law, any law, to utterly disregard the law, to be totally disregarding and disbelieving of the law. That's that's what that means. Uh, We're gonna we're we're, not only are we we we're gonna talk about that as we go through this class. You're right, Dorothy. I mean, it just feels like we're getting Mm -hmm. more. I mean, you think how much worse can it get? Right? It's getting more and more that way. but we'll we'll talk about that. But let's first notice something here, in these in this this idea. Um, I want to talk about the both of these things kind of in order here. If we, the the great revolt, the rebellion. Let's talk about that first. The word here is apostia. Okay, a a p o s apostia sounds a lot like. Apostle, but it's not the same. It has the same root, the idea of sending. But it also sounds like we we get the word apostasy, apostasy, which means what? Turning away. Uh, It literally means turning away from truth or disbelieving a truth, okay? The Greek word metanoia means turning away. That's the word repent, to turn away. Well, to turn away from what? To apostatize is to literally reject the truth. Okay, and to do something about it, to disbelieve it, to move away. So the apostia is the great, the great, and this would literally defined as a great rebellion. Okay, this is a big turning away. This is something nobody's gonna miss. Okay, that's what he's trying to tell them here. This is a great rebellion. Um, it could be. It has allusions to a military revolt. It has allusions to a political type coup type thing. These are allusions to what this word might mean. It's something you cannot miss. And he's telling them, don't worry. You're going to see these two things happen before the end can come. So then he moves from there um, to this idea of the man of lawlessness. Then the man of lawlessness comes. Paul, interestingly, never uses the word antichrist. Paul never uses that word. The man who wrote two-thirds of the book of the New Testament never uses that word. He does use this word, man of lawlessness. Who does? Where do we find the word antichrist in Scripture? There's only one book we find it in. Revelation. Nope. That's, that's our first guess. It's in, it's in the letter of 1 John. In the letter of 1 John, he speaks of the antichrist. And in fact, John says there, many antichrists have come. But... Um, 
But we know that this, this is who he's talking about. He's talking about the Antichrist. That word is appropriate. We can use that word. John uses it. Because it's a man of lawlessness. What is Christ? But Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, God is the law. He's the lawgiver. He gives us the law. It is only through the law, Scripture teaches us, that we even know what sin is. Okay, and so Christ is the fulfillment of all law. So for this to be a literal lawlessness, then it has to be the very antithesis of the fulfillment of all law, which would where we get that thought, Christ is the law, Antichrist is the unfulfillment of the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law, Antichrist is the rejecting of the law. Okay, And the law has what? It has really two natures, right? It has a moral nature to it, and it has a ethical nature to it. Okay, Laws that govern our society and laws that govern our person. And so this concept of this word lawlessness, this man of laws, is one that rejects them both. Not just a part of the law, but all law, which we would think of as anarchy. The idea that there is no law. Just upsetting all law. So there's a lot happening here. This, again, this is something that you won't miss, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. You won't miss this. This is a this whole passage, Paul uses this phrase, man of lawlessness, several times. And he calls him, he tries to expound on it. He says, the son of perdition, in at the end of verse three. The son of perdition. What does perdition mean? It means destruction the son of destruction. He's trying to kind of use some adjectives to describe this Antichrist. He's a son of destruction. Um, and it says he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So what do we know about this Antichrist? The way he opposes all law is he sets himself up as the fulfillment of all law, as the fulfillment of all worship, as the object of worship. Okay? clearly claiming to be God himself, okay? So now you begin to see allusions to the book of Revelation where there's a, the dragon who is Satan himself who set himself up to be God, thought he could be God, and was kicked out of heaven, and we saw his false prophet who t- helps him in the book of Revelation. Now we begin to see, even though the book of Revelation doesn't talk about the Antichrist by word, it does talk about a false prophet who's set up against God. Now, it says that this verse 4, I want you to know right now that verse 4 is one of the hardest verses to interpret in the Bible. (laughs) Almost all theologians that you read struggle with an understanding of this verse. So I'm not going to give you a lot of clarity on it, but I am going to give you some options, okay? When well-meaning, learned people that are way smarter than me have struggled with it, who am I to stand here and tell you? I know what it means. I'm not going to do that. Okay, he says, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. What in the world does that scripture mean? Does that verse mean? Well, at a first glance, what's your first? In, when it says he sets himself up in the temple of God, what is your first thought? Temple in Jerusalem. There's a temple in Jerusalem, God's temple, Herod's temple. He goes in there and says, I'm God. Okay. 
going to represent himself as a holy man. So that that is your first inclination, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe maybe that's the answer. Although there is no temple right now that he could physically do that with, right? It was torn down in 70 A.D. And I, we all know there's a lot of hype about maybe it being rebuilt someday. And there's a lot of people talking about it and trying to do it. We know a lot of things happen to happen before that can happen because there's a mosque sitting there in its place right now. Where's it supposed to be rebuilt if the other one's there? Well, that's what I mean. That mosque has to go away before to rebuild the temple. Okay. Oh, so they have so to So a lot of things have to happen for that to be fulfilled that are going to be very volatile and very violent uh, between the Muslims and the Jews. So... So, that, but what I'm, what I'm leading you to here is how you immediately drew that conclusion. Yeah. Okay, maybe because you've been taught that, maybe because it just makes sense because we hear the word temple. Okay, let's read. Look, turn with me to the book of. Yeah, but that would be the holy land of all of earth. Yeah. Right, right. Which, which we'd have to, we'd have to ask ourselves. Why you're leading to one of my points, Jackie, and that is why, if he means that, it seems odd that this world ruler is going to... Rome is the center of power. Rome rules the world. These are Greeks that he's writing to in Thessalonica. Uh, they don't really know a whole lot about that temple. Okay, the, That's not been a part of their training. Would they automatically make that uh, connection? Uh, or maybe makes more sense that the connection could be the, the seat of power, which is Rome. Maybe the temple is, he's talking about the seat of power, and, and a, a more of a temple motif, if you will. What, how, do we, how do we interpret the temple? Read to me. And what I wanted you to, this is one of those sessions where I wanted you to hear, I'm giving you a couple of options here that are all probable or possible. I mean, not probable. They're not all probable. They're all possible. Okay. So listen to Ephesians. Let's turn in your, if you have a Bible, turn back to the book of Ephesians with me. Chapter 2. The same author, which is the, the Apostle Paul, in chapter 2, he says this, and I'll begin reading. Yeah, there's no good place to start in the middle of a story, but he's talking about the person of Jesus here. Uh, in verse 17, he says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. That's an allusion to the Gentiles who were far away and to the Jews who were near. Okay, that's verse 17 in chapter 2. Okay, for through him, meaning Jesus, through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Paul is teaching Gentiles about Jesus, okay, and who Jesus is and how he's called both of them. And it's through Jesus that we all both have access to the Father. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So, now Paul's not writing about the physical temple of Herod in Jerusalem, is he? He's talking about what? He's talking about the church of God as a temple of God. And who is the church? We are. People. 
And we know that in other places, Paul says, do you not know that your body is temple of the Holy Spirit? So there are many possibilities of what that he might have meant to those Thessalonians about the temple when he sets himself up into the temple. Well, can Satan set himself up in our hearts? Yes, he can. And he does, sadly, because we allow him to. Could his emissary, the Antichrist, do that? Sure. Deception of evil and all kinds of things. So uh, I'm just trying to give you options here. It's not always so clear-cut as we think. Now, um, so perhaps if Paul means that the temple is the temple of God, it takes his seat in the temple. This imagery of taking your seat in a temple is an imagery of becoming ruler. These were Greeks. They understood that. They had all built temples to their gods, and there was always a seat in those temples, and that's where they put the statue of the person on the seat as if they were ruling the world, okay? Whether that was Zeus or one of their other little smaller gods, they understood what he meant when he used the imagery of setting himself up on the seat of God. So um, this idea that, that there is this person who sets himself up to be worshipped in a temple isn't quite as clear-cut as we might have thought it was. And let's, I want you to hear the words of St. Augustine, uh, or St. Augustine, however you want to say it, back in the 5th century. He said this in his book, The City of God, which is one of his greatest writings. It's an incredible book. You should read it sometime. He said this. He said, frankly, I just, I must confess, I don't know what he means. <laughs> There's just too many options here. I don't know what he means. And, and, and this is truly, if you read, read a lot of theologians and, and commentaries throughout history, this is one of the hardest ones to determine. So let's don't be dogmatic about what that means. But I think we can be dogmatic about one thing. We can be dogmatic about the fact that there is a power of evil in our world that is setting itself against the power of good and yes. of God. Okay, and, and, and it will come to a head. It will be revealed okay, at some point in, in a way that we can't miss. And, and then we don't want to gloss over this idea of this. So that's, that's the rebellion, this apostasia. Uh, but as we talk about this man, this man of lawlessness or this antichrist, we want to notice that they, Paul uses two grammatical I, I'm not an English major, so I struggle with this. Uh, the, the noun, okay, he uses first the word, he uses the word it, and he also uses the word man. One's a neuter gender, and one's a masculine gender. Okay, so let's hear it again. Uh, find where I want to start here. Okay. Okay, verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you this? And you know what is restraining him. Okay, so is is the word. I said it a minute ago. I'm sorry. I meant is. He's talking about a thing. Okay, there is a neuter ten, tender to this uh, if we grammatically take it apart. He, you know what is restraining him, making it sound like a thing. Okay. Now, so that he may be revealed in his time. And there he switches to the word. Uh, and the word in the Greek is anthropos, 
which means humanity. Technically, it doesn't even mean male. It means humanity, a human being. So you know what is restraining him, this human being, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And only he, again, masculine, only anthropos, who now restrains it, okay, will do so until he is out of the way. Well, that's a confusing sentence. Let's read that again. Let's look at this carefully. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So now we have both a, we not only have a man of lawlessness being talked about, we have a mystery of lawlessness. Mine says secret power. Secret, that's that word mysterion in the Greek, this idea of something we don't understand, this secret power that's operating in our world, which we, of course, would know as the power of evil, okay? Manipulative spirit. Yeah. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And only he who now restrains it, so this mysterious thing is an it, will do so until he is out of the way. Okay? That's very confusing. There's a two he's there. Only he who restrains it until he is out of the way, whoever this is that's restraining it. So some theologians will tell you that that is the Holy Spirit. That's the way they define it, that it's the Holy Spirit. But that's not necessarily the case. We can't, lot, we can't dogmatically say that. <clears throat> There's a couple of other things it could be. Okay? First of all, I think one of the biggest problems we have with this idea of it being the Holy Spirit is Paul's being, Paul's being very nebulous. And I don't think Paul would be really nebulous about the Holy Spirit. I, I just don't think he would. I think he would just say it. But maybe still, I'm, I'm not saying it can't be the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying it doesn't doesn't make the most sense to me. Because then, if that's true, well, it says no. It says it says he's the he. Let's just use his name. Let's say it says only the Holy Spirit who now restrains it will do so until the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. It's talking about the Holy Spirit restraining the power of evil in our world. Okay, that's what it, that's that's one way that theologians have. Read this scripture, okay? Is not the Holy Spirit in the church? So the church, okay. when the church is taken up and raptured, yeah. it is gone. Okay, so so now there's a fine distinction there that it maybe it means, and I believe the second one most that a lot of theologians use is, is this idea that it's the church, that the church is what's restraining it. The church is the power of God in the world. That the church, the body of Christ, is uh, of course where the Holy Spirit dwells and also dwells in us. But it's problematic to say, it's problematic to say that there's some rapture that takes it out of the way. Okay, that's a little problematic in the sense that the Holy, because the Holy Spirit is everywhere, always, and filling all things. There's never a, so the, the Holy Spirit, I don't believe, can be taken out of the world. Okay, that's problematic to the understanding of God being omnipresent and God being triune, one, never divided. Problematic. See, when you really get deep into this, it's a little problematic. Although that is taught a lot. So, um, another possibility besides the Holy Spirit in the church in that is maybe it, maybe it refers to Paul. Maybe Paul's talking about himself and he's being humble. 
Maybe he's talking about himself saying, well, you know what, now restrain my work, my missionary work to the Gentile world. Maybe that's what's restraining it because God is anointing my missionary work and, and we're going to, we got to go out into the whole world, Jesus said, and the gospel, we know the end won't come until the gospels reach the whole end of the world. Maybe that's what Paul, he's being very humble by referring to his mission as an it, okay? His mission to the world. Possible, but maybe not necessarily the case. There's one more possibility. What if it means Rome? What if it means the power of the state? In their day, it was Rome. Rome was the ultimate power. Rome established laws. Okay? Rome had the power to enforce laws. But hey, we're not living under Rome anymore. We're 2,000 years later. So it can't just be Rome. Is the Pope by Rome? But it, he is in Rome, yeah. But it could be the power of the state is what I'm saying. Okay, what if it's the power of the state? You know what, what, what does, does the power of the state restrain evil in our world? Well, it's supposed to. There are laws against you coming into my house and stealing from me, right? <laughs> supposed to. It doesn't as well as it used to, I think we can all say. Uh, but maybe that's... I, I want to read to you. I, I really respect John Scott, a great theologian of the last... of the 20th century. I think one of the greatest of the 20th century. He's, he's gone now. He's beloved of, uh, of eternal memory. But he, is, uh, he wrote this in his study of the Thessalonians... And I just want to read it to you because I think it bears reading. Uh, Where do I begin? Okay. It's talking about this he that's going to eventually be revealed. This, this, uh, before he is revealed openly, however, the lawlessness he embodies is operating secretly. So he's talking about this person of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, before he's revealed, we know Paul just said he's operating secretly in the world. So he's saying, before he is revealed openly, however the lawlessness he embodies, he's operating secretly in the world. His anti-social, anti-law, anti-God movement is at present largely underground. Now this is John Stott writing in the 20th century, okay? Okay, the 20th, late 20th century. He is presently underground. We detect its subversive influence around us today in the atheistic stance of secular humanism, in the totalitarian tendencies of extreme left-wing and extreme right-wing ideologies, in the materialism of the consumer society which puts things in the place of God, in those so-called theologies which proclaim the death of God, and the end of all moral absolutes, and in the social permissiveness which cheapens the sanctity of human life, sex, marriage, and family, all of which God created it and instituted, were it not for some remaining restraints which preserve a measure of justice, freedom, order, and decency, these things would break out much more virulently, and one day they will. For when the restraint is removed, then secret subversion will become open rebellion under the unscrupulous leadership of the lawless one who will be revealed. Then we can expect a period, mercifully short, 
of political, social, and moral chaos in which God and law are impudently flouted until suddenly the Lord Jesus will come and overthrow him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the splendor of his coming. That's all quoted from the text. And then he says, in parentheses, this, he quotes a, a, a writer named Ernest Best who said, there is no long battle, writes Ernest Best. Victory comes at once. <laughs> I love that thought. You know, Jesus doesn't have to struggle with Satan or the Antichrist. No. Right. <laughs> Jesus will come and it will be over. Okay, uh, let's not forget that. But would you, did you catch, I, I know that was kind of a little deep maybe to read, uh, and just maybe not fair to just read it to you without your being able to muse on it for a while. But what he was trying to say there is this idea that there is a state that does restrain evil in our world right now, and it's called the power of the state, the power of the government. And Paul even says in the Roman letter that the government is the institution of God to work, to, work, uh, to hand out retribution or reward. I mean, he talks about that in Romans 13. So maybe it's the state. And until that state is taken away, until, and when is the state taken away? Well, if this, this Antichrist, the person that is being talked about, and make no mistake, I do believe there is one person who will be the final person. I believe, as John says, there have been many Antichrists. Okay? In every age, in some sense, in every age, this is being fulfilled and lived out. But it will come to a final culmination. And when that person is revealed, the state will go away because that person will be acknowledged as the supreme leader, if you will, the one world ruler, if you will, that sets himself up to be God, if you will. So that, that hasn't, here's what I want you to hear today. That has not happened yet. That has not happened yet. Will it happen in our lifetime, in the next 20 or 30 years? I do not know. Because in the, a day in the life of God is like a thousand years in the life of man, Scripture teaches us. I, I don't know. It's been 2,000. Why doesn't he wait another 2,000? I don't know. Okay. Go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, I heard a report the other day that the churches in Europe are almost all gone. They are. That they are being used for first and Sunday things, uh, skateboard park, and so on and so forth. Sad. Europe has been all but lost in many places to the, the church. The cathedrals church. and things we saw over in Europe when we were there. Yeah. Empty. 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 It's sad. It's, it's terribly sad. Um, we definitely can see fulfillment. We are moving towards this time of the end. I was going to say that kind of leading into what you're saying is going there. That's right. Absolutely. So what, and what do we see in the law? We see laws breaking down, don't we? Oh, yeah. We see moral laws breaking down hugely. I mean, it's just not hard to... I, 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 I'm, I'm not meaning to be political or controversial. I'm just trying to be a truth teller here. What do you think? I'll tell you in a second. It <laughs> blows my mind. Here's what I think. It blows my mind that I'm living in a society where... Government leaders can say, it's okay if you just take your refuse right on the street. Defecate right on the street. Do whatever you, I mean, that, that's okay? In what civil society is that okay? It, it, we're, not, we're fastly becoming an uncivilized society. And, I, you know, it's just, it's nuts. I would have never dreamed. I mean, I would have never dreamed this would happen in my lifetime, but it is. So... <clears throat> 
and, 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 and I would have never, there's always been abortion, okay? You can read about it in history, but now it's by the millions. And even in this last year, in this political debate, what did they talk about? They talked about letting the baby be born and then killing it. I mean, could we get much lower? Probably, unfortunately, but we're getting low fast. You see what I'm saying? We are seeing fulfillment. We are moving towards the end. Or members of the same sex being married. That was illegal. And, and now, not only can they marry, now there is, it's, now it's no sex. There's no such thing as a sex, a gender. You're just whatever you want to be. You're whatever you want to be. Just declare it, and you're good to go. Okay? This is nuts. This is nuts. This is chaos. This is... This is against the moral order of things, okay? The good order of things. So, so what can we say? Jackie, you asked, what do I think? <laughs> You'll put me on the spot here. Uh, I tell you what I think. I truly believe that, um, that we are nearing the end. And I do believe that in the very end, because it says, uh, other places in Scripture, it says... That, that this great deception, this great rebellion, would it's going to be so bad, this great tribulation, if you will, it's going to be so bad, it would even destroy the elect. That means the church. That means the people of God, if it were not cut short. Okay? So... We are seeing great attacks against the church in our world today, the Church of Christ. You mentioned it in Europe. It's happening from the churches in in our world, in this Western culture, are breaking apart, really decaying from within because of a lack of strong biblical teaching and strong biblical leadership. We're just decaying from within in many, many churches. And uh, so that to me is... This great apostasy, okay, that word to apostatize every time that's used. Paul uses it later in some of his letters, I think to Titus, I can't remember exactly where, but the the idea of that word speaks about Christians turning away, okay? And Christians are starting to turn away from truth in big numbers, sadly. They're redefining what they think truth is. And that, to me, teaches me we're really getting... Are we getting, I would not be surprised if the end comes in my lifetime, or at least in my children's lifetime, but I'm not going to predict that. And like you said, no man shall know, the, the Bible says, That's right. no, no man, man shall, shall know. know the day nor the hour, but you will see the signs. What do you think about the signs? That's right, we're seeing, we're seeing this. Jesus himself said, Jesus himself said, you will see, let's hear the words of Jesus. Let me go back to Matthew. Turn back to Matthew chapter 24 for a second. Let's, let's try and bring this thought to a close with the words of Jesus. Okay? Let him have the final say. Not just what I think. <laughs> um, okay. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We'll just begin with, um, wow, do I dare read the whole chapter? Wow. (laughs) So hard to break in in the middle of these words, okay? Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? 
Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. That's what we've been hearing from Paul. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. You will see see that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. He's talking about believers falling away. That's apostasy, okay? Many, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. Ooh, that hurts. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, then let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and whoever is on the housetop must go down to the things to get must not go down and get the things out of his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, I'm going to stop there, but I'm going to ask you a question. Has any of that been fulfilled yet? Yes. Yes. Yes, it has. Okay. Is there ascension which some of it is still yet to be fulfilled? Yes. Okay. Even when he he talks about them about specific things, when you see the abomination of desolation, he's referring to an event that happened couple of times. Okay, Daniel prophesied about 500 years before Christ or so, and in about 169 years before Christ, there was a, a, a ruler of the world, his emperor, and Antiochus Epiphanes, who warred against the Jews, took over Israel, went into the temple, desecrated it, set himself up to be worshipped, sacrificed swine on the altar. It was That's what he's talking about. And then again in 63 B.C. before Christ, another emperor of the world, uh, I think his name was Ptolemy, no, Pompey, Pompey. Pompey did it too, walked into the Jerusalem temple and just set himself up and desecrated it. Um, So these things have been fulfilled. So he's saying when you see these things, okay, now obviously they're going to happen again. That's why he's saying when you see these things. When we look at the year 70 AD, it is clear that much of this was all. You can draw about all of that into fulfillment 
in the year 70 AD when the Romans put an end to the way of life of the Jews. The massacres, the horrible attrition, the famines, the, the, the desecrating of the temple, the tearing it down, one stone upon the other, that happened in 70 AD. There is no more temple now. Now, does that mean that that was the end? Well, it can't be. We're all still here. <laughs> okay? But we did see much of this fulfilled. And what I'm telling you is there will be more fulfillment. And we are seeing. It's not just because there's earthquakes. It's not just because there's wars. That's always been and always will be until the end. Those are just the beginnings. But what he is saying, make no mistake, what Jesus is saying is there will be great tribulations such as the world has never seen. Okay? And what happened in 70 AD was great tribulation such as had never been seen. And we're looking for even something greater. It's a horrible thing. Okay? One of the things now is the technology. How do you flee and hide? How do you flee they and hide? Catch yeah. you any, I mean, they have So true. So yeah. true. I mean, you can't hide anymore. It's getting real complicated. <laughs> Going off grid is hard. Look at the coronavirus. Coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah, probably. So here's what I want you to hear. It's 12.02. I've run you over. I always start a minute or two late. I don't know what time I started. But I want you to hear. We're, we're going to continue chapter two next week. Um, but, but let's end with this thought. Don't be deceived. The end has not yet come. We're still looking for Jesus to return. He, as our creed says, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Amen? Amen. Okay. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Father God, for this time of study together. Thank you for these who have gathered and those who could not be here. Be with them especially. We're praying especially in our hearts for, for the Markham family. Uh, just be with them in this time of loss. And give them the grace of your Holy Spirit. But give us all, Father, a greater measure of your Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and keep us in your word. Help us now until we meet again. And we ask this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry. And I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as He forms His Spirit within you.